0: In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said that to Abraham. And when he said it to him, he in effect made that promise to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. For we are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. We have a covenant keeping God. That is, we have a God who keeps his promises with those he chooses to be in relationship with. Today, we will look at God's covenant with Abraham that he announced 4,000 years ago as detailed in Genesis 17. The word covenant is important to God. He uses it 13 times in this chapter. This covenant, this relationship, this promise that God establishes is as eternal and everlasting as God is. It can never be reversed, canceled, or annulled. Out of the covenant of Abraham comes the covenant of David. And out of the covenant of Abraham comes the full flourishing of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic covenant is a ground and basis for all that will come after in God's covenant of grace. Once God establishes this covenant, there is no amount of time that can exhaust it. There is no circumstance that can change it and no tragedy that can destroy it. As we contemplate our covenant-keeping God today in chapter 17 of Genesis, my hope and prayer for you is as you understand God better, your soul will be lifted up And your spirit will be enriched and encouraged. There are three distinct sections we're going to look at today in Genesis 17, verses 1 to 22. But what is common to all three parts is God dominates the chapter. He is the primary speaker from verses 1 to 22. And we want to really listen and hear what He has to say to us. First, there's verses 1 to 8. God gives details and expands on His covenant, which He first announced to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then inaugurated and ratified in Genesis 15. We will see in this first section what it means to have a covenant-keeping God. Second, in verses 9 to 14, God talks about the sign of circumcision and His covenant. And parents, I'm going to let you describe what circumcision is to your children. Third, in verses 15 to 22, God talks about Abraham's promised son and the covenant. We will see that God will have no part of Abraham and Sarah's plan to provide a son to Abraham through purely human efforts and schemes. Now for the first section. Verses 1 to 8, follow, as, follow along as I read these verses and see God giving Abraham details and expanding on the covenant he's already talked about in Genesis 12 and 15. I want you to notice two things as we read. How often the word covenant appears and how often God says, shall be and I will. God is the active agent. In verses 1 to 22. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. How many times was covenant used in those eight verses? Four times. We've got nine more to go. But four times he uses it. What is a covenant Basically, a covenant is a relationship with a promise attached to it. We use the word generally speaking in our culture. A marriage relationship is a covenant. I belong to a homeowners association and we have covenants that govern how we interact with and live with one another in my neighborhood. Biblical covenants are similar but they also include God as part of the relationship. And the word relationship is key when it comes to covenant. One writer has defined a biblical covenant as a legally binding relationship enforced by God. I like that for a brief definition. Another writer has identified three elements in a biblical covenant. God promises with his people or with humankind in general... To be their God. God is the author and the initiator of the covenant. And they are divine commitments bound by God's oath or bound by God's word. To grasp the full power of what God says about covenants here, we have to step into what I call our Old Testament shoes. In fact, we need to step into really, really old Old Testament shoes from 4,000 years ago. From Abraham's time. And what, and why do we want to do that? When we do that, we will see that we are on strange ground. Because in the ancient world, there were no covenants like this that existed between gods and goddesses. In the ancient world, covenants like this did not exist. They just were not made. They were not spoken of. These gods did not make unilateral promises as part of a loving commitment to a people. Now the gods might threaten judgment for bad behavior or promise rewards for good, but they did not swear an unconditional oath to have a binding, permanent, and forever relationship with a people on the basis of grace alone the way the one true God does with Abraham in Genesis twelve, fifteen, and 17. That is how unique our God is. The God of the Bible is unlike any other gods invented by man throughout history. He is the one and only one who does such a thing. God commits Himself to a covenant, to a binding relationship here with Abraham and his offspring. Don't miss the significance of this. It's easy for us as modern people who are familiar with the Bible... And with the stories of the Bible, the creator of all things condescends, comes down to a human being and establishes a covenant relationship with him. Why almost 4,000 years ago does God do this? Well, he does it because mankind is in deep trouble. There has been the fall. Adam and Eve were perfectly set up in the garden by God. Told not to eat of the tree of good and evil. Told to have dominion over the earth. Told to multiply on the earth. But they failed. Adam failed. They failed. They're in trouble. Murder comes into the human world as Cain murders his brother Abel. The flood comes as judgment as people, humankind once again demonstrates they will not follow God. And then even the descendants of Noah fail. As they multiply throughout the earth they begin to gather at the Tower of Babel. And they are going to build a tower unto their own false god. And God judges them there. Humankind is in a desperate, lost, and seemingly hopeless situation. But God calls Abram. He calls Abraham. He calls one person to begin the process of deliverance according to His perfect plan and purpose established from the foundation of the world. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. And says all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. We know from this side of the cross, that's pointing forward to the descendant of Abraham who is Jesus Christ. In Genesis 15, Abraham, who many years after Genesis 12, still has no son, pleads with God to fulfill his promise. And God again promises Abraham a son and descendants who will be as many as the stars of heaven. And then Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us, in a watershed verse in the Bible... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is saved by faith in God. By believing in God's promises. He is not saved by his works or his good deeds or things done to appease God. He is simply saved by believing in God. Paul makes a big deal out of this in Romans 4. We're going to talk about Romans 4 a little bit later. And this coming to God by faith, believing His promises, this is unique too. This is different from the way the so-called gods and goddesses of the ancient world dealt with their followers. For them, they were always on the treadmill of good works. They were blessed or delivered by their good works or cursed and damned by their their bad ones. They had better appease the gods or they would be judged harshly. Not so the God of Abraham. Not so the God of the Bible. Also in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 17 we saw God inaugurate the covenant with Abraham with the cutting of a covenant. God told Abraham to take the animals and cut them in half and lay them out. It must have been a bloody path. And then God passes through the midst of the animals while Abraham slept, while Abraham did nothing. Essentially, God was saying... I will keep this covenant with you, Abraham, and if I break it, the penalty for me is death. Or you might say that God is saying, even if I have to die in order to keep my covenant with you, I will endure death for you. Remind you of something? Yeah. Yeah. You see, we have a God who baffles us with His stance and His seemingly slow and lethargic ways. He is a mystifying God. He is a unique God. He is a wonderful God. He saves in unique and wonderful ways. His promises are magnificent and awe-inspiring. Isaiah 55 tells us, God speaking... For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For instance, there is a time gap between the end of chapter 16 of Genesis when Abraham is 86 years old that's when Ishmael, the son of Abraham from Hagar, is born. There are 13 years missing between chapters 16 and 17. We know nothing of those 13 years. Absolutely zero. But then we come to chapter 17 verse one. Keep in mind, in chapter 15, God pleaded, or Abraham pleaded with God again to give him a son. So let's jump back to our text in Genesis 15. Did you notice how many times God says, shall be and I will? Seven times in verses 4 to 8. Let's look at them again more specifically. Verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He doesn't even have any kids yet. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Notice, God is the one taking action here. God is the one making promises. He is making unilateral promises to Abraham. He's making unconditional promises to Abraham. They are promises based on God's grace and not on Abraham's works. And the promises here expand on what He's already told him in Genesis 12. In chapter 12, God told Abraham He was going to make him a great nation. Yet here, in verses four to six, God tells him he will be the father of a multitude of nations. Many nations will come from him. Even kings will come from him. This is clearly tied to the promise of Genesis 12.3 that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham in such a way that multitudes of nations and kings would trace their spiritual heritage to Abraham through Abraham's offspring who we know is Jesus Christ. And it's true today. Abraham's spiritual offspring inhabit the nations, the multitude of nations of the earth. Paul taught us this in Galatians chapter three, verses seven to nine. Listen as I read. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham is our spiritual father. God says so. Now let's jump down and notice especially verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 17. Once again I read, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In verse eight, the promises of an everlasting inheritance. Here God expands on the promises of chapter 12, verse seven, where he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice it says in verse eight, I will give to you and your seed after you, the land of your sojournings. Let me ask you, how can that be fulfilled? This is usually taken as a promise of real estate for Abraham's family. But there's something that doesn't entirely fit. Abraham had already been told in Genesis chapter 15 verse 15 that he would die before he gets the entirety of the land. He was also told his seed would only get to live in it after at least 400 years of difficulty in a foreign land, in Egypt. If verse 8 is true, how will Abraham receive that along with his seed? In fact, Abraham never in his earthly life inhabits this land. Never. He never receives that literal promise. So let's be humble for for a minute and assume Abraham is as smart as we are. He was a rich guy. He was a smart guy. Knowing what God had already told him in Genesis 15, Abraham knew he could only personally enjoy the entirety of the land God promised him after his death. You go, huh? He knew this was true of many of his offspring too. In fact, Abraham would ultimately have to enjoy the land and the complete and ultimate fulfillment of this promise of everlasting possession of the land in his life after death. Turn with me to Hebrews 11, verse 8, and the following verses. And we're going to see what Abraham was ultimately looking forward to. By the way, they conquered the land, didn't they, in the book of Joshua after the Exodus, but they never conquered all of it. By the way, David and Solomon occupied much of the land during their reigns of kings, but they never occupied all of it. Look what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 and following tells us. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and building is God. What's he looking forward to? I thought he was looking forward to living in this promised land that he sojourned in. Jump down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." A heavenly country and a heavenly city. That's what Abraham is looking forward to. Now just because it's heavenly, don't think that it doesn't have grass and dirt in it. Read Isaiah 65. Read Revelation 21. These are real places. God's new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. That's what Abraham is looking forward to. He's looking forward to the kingdom, ultimate eternal kingdom established by Christ. Abraham knew this was an unfading inheritance that sin and death can't ruin. And he was looking forward to that. The land of Canaan was a picture and type of heaven. It was described as the land flowing with milk and honey. It was a type and shadow of paradise on earth that foreshadowed and pictured the ultimate heavenly home God had prepared for Abraham and for his people for all ages. And just like Abraham, you and I will meet physical death in this life. But that cannot take away our inheritance. We have a better country. A heavenly one that awaits us too. There's another promise here. Look at the end of verse 7. The promise is to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What does that promise involve? It means God is for you. God is committed to you. There is no greater promise in all the scripture. The the analogies fail us here, for how can mere language plumb the depth of what it means when God says, He will be God to you? God is saying, I will be with you in all circumstances, in all your joys, in all your pain, in all your trials. God is pledging he will be all God should and could and would be to his children. That's a great and magnificent promise. First given to Abraham and then applied to us through the gospel. For again, we are his spiritual offspring. We're now going to turn to the second passage in today's message. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 14, as God gives Abraham instructions regarding the sign of circumcision as it relates to his covenant. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. "'Both he who is born in your house "'and he who is bought with your money "'shall surely be circumcised. "'So so shall my covenant be in your flesh "'an everlasting covenant. "'Any uncircumcised male "'who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin "'shall be cut off from his people. "'He has broken my covenant.'" Here, following God's detail and expansion of his universal covenant, he established with Abraham that is based on God's grace, we see God's call to obedience. Let's be clear what this is. Circumcision here is a response to being saved for Abraham. It is not the means by which Abraham is saved. Abraham is obeying out of faith in God and in response to God's promise. Abraham is not called to obey in order to get the promise. Abraham's obedience here is evidence of his faith in God. Paul made this very clear in Romans 4 starting in verse 1. You can turn there if you'd like. It is so great when the New Testament gives you such a clear interpretation so we might know exactly God what what God meant when he wrote Genesis 17. Listen while I read Romans 4, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll jump down to verses 9 to 11. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? for it was for if abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before god for what does the scripture say abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness that's genesis 15:6 now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes him who who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith. He could not justify them on the basis of works. They're ungodly. Jump down to verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised... While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Said plainly. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him for righteousness. In Genesis 15. Thirteen years before God told him to be circumcised. As a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was not a work that saved Abraham. Just like baptism is not a work that saves us today. Paul makes it super clear, circumcision was not the cause of the blessing upon Abraham. Rather, it is an effect of it. It is clear that Abraham was saved by faith in God and not by works And it is out of gratitude to God and a desire to bring glory to him that Abraham obeyed the Lord without hesitation, as described in verses 23 to 27. Why circumcision, you say? Seems like such a strange custom to us to use as a sign and seal of the covenant with Abraham. Circumcision is like God's brand that marks his people out as the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. It says they belong to God's people Israel and to God himself. Now this was not just practiced in Israel. It was practiced widely throughout the Near East. It was a puberty rite in many ancient cultures. And here God applies it to young people and adults and then to infants as an ongoing sign of the Abrahamic covenant to Israel. This doesn't mean females are cut out of the covenant. They are covered by their fathers and their husbands. Why is this a sign of the covenant? What does that indicate? The word itself means the cutting off. And at one level, it's a sign of judgment. There are a number of views, but one I like says that for Abraham and his physical descendants, it is a symbol that reminds them their sin deserves judgment, but that God will provide deliverance for my sin. In fact, the word cutting off is similar to the word to cut a covenant in Genesis 15. You get the sense of deliverance from sin from Paul in Colossians 2 verse 11. We're going to read that in just a minute. Another view says it's a symbol of loyalty to God that says, I am not my own. I belong to another. Well, whatever view you like or adopt or you think is the right one, we can be friends. I'm not dying on that hill. Two other points to make before we leave circumcision. Circumcision served as a sign that you are part of God's people Israel, the Jewish people. And that meant that believer and unbeliever alike were physically circumcised. Paul addressed that in Romans 2, verses 25 to 29. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that in the Exodus, most of the Jews who were in the Exodus were not believers in God. With most of them, God was not well pleased. This is true throughout Israel's history. Isaiah speaks of the remnant In Israel. He sometimes calls them the survivors. They are the smaller group within Israel. Within larger Israel. That truly believe in the one true God. Second. If you are a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ. You too have been circumcised. Male or female. You say what? Yes. You've been spiritually circumcised. By Christ. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 11 through 14. In him also, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. In this passage, too, you see that the church under the new covenant holds that the covenant sign is changed to water baptism. Just like God commanded Abraham, who was saved by faith, to undergo circumcision in order to identify them as the people of the one true God in the Old Testament, so Jesus commands us as New Testament believers to undergo baptism in order to publicly identify us as His followers in the New Testament. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's move on to the third section. Verses 15 to 22. Here God talks about Abraham's promised son and the covenant. Follow along as I read. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his faith and laughed <laughs> and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It's like he says, God, have you forgotten about Ishmael? God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. See, Abraham and Sarah thought they had this problem of a son for Abraham, Saul back in Genesis chapter 16, with the birth of Ishmael by Sarah's maid, Hagar. But surprise, surprise... God says, no, not so fast. Sarah, your wife will bear you a son. Well, they'd been in the land 10 years before Genesis 15, and now 13 more years since chapters 16 and 17. So now they've been in the land 23 or 24 years, and no child by Sarah has come, and now this? Just like God said to Abraham, he tells Sarah, nations and kings of peoples will come from you, which will be tough since she has no children at the age of 90. And it kind of goes without saying, she's well past menopause in the childbearing years. How is God going to do this? You see, God insists he is going to do it his way. Why, oh why, oh why does God do this this way? God wants to ensure Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants, and the readers of his word for all time know of the promised miracle baby named Isaac that will come supernaturally in the line of Abraham so that all the families of the earth can be blessed. In other words, this isn't a human work. This is a work of God. It's a miracle of God. And I think type and shadow are involved here. God is supernaturally continuing the line of promise through Abraham by the miracle of bringing a baby of promise into this world when Abraham and Sarah are in their 90s. And so too... In the fullness of time, a baby will be born to a virgin in the town of lowly Bethlehem who will be Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, who came to save his people from their sins. In Genesis chapter 22, you're going to find out about the sacrifice of Abraham, of his son Isaac, or the near sacrifice. I think that's foreshadowing as well. You might ask, why does God let so much time go by? You know how hard it is to keep faith as time passes by. For things you really long for and wish for and have prayed for. And it seems sometimes time just goes on and on. What lessons are there in this for us? Well, it seems that God is never in a hurry. That's true, and it's also a problem. So much ordinary time goes by waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. We, like the psalmist in Psalm 92, wonder, how long, O Lord? See, we prefer to have a God who moves swiftly according to our timetable. We'd like Him to solve our problems and our issues now. Now. But God is unhurried. What does that tell us? Tells us God works on his timetable, not ours. Even our sanctification works that way, doesn't it? We want him to fix us and our problems now, to get rid of our sin now. But he often works not just in weeks or months, but in decades and years. That's the work that he's doing to bring us to maturity in Christ. It's a lifetime work for us. The question for us, can we stand the ordinariness of the Christian life like Abraham and Sarah did for most of their lives waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled? Can we be content with living the ordinary Christian life in light of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and in our case the fulfillment of it in the new covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ? Not only can we, but we must, for God has called us to. And He's called us to do it in hope. Well, what can we take away from our chapter today? From the Abrahamic covenant. First, we have a covenant God who keeps His promises. This is vital as we travel through life. As we live by faith. We are sojourners and exiles and we are sustained and encouraged by looking forward to the promised land of the heavenly country and city just like Abraham. And we have the reassurance that the promises given to Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ. Second, the Abrahamic covenant assures us of our faith by highlighting the work of Christ the offspring of Abraham. For Christ was made a curse for us and suffered the realities of death on the cross. He was buried and rose again. This gives us confidence that we are no longer under a curse and have been redeemed from the curse of the law and from our sin, knowing this is essential to our joy as Christians as as well as living a life of grateful obedience to our God. And third... The Abrahamic covenant declares God's grace to the nations. It tells us the gospel is for people of every race, tribe, and nationality. God promised Abraham that his offspring would be a light to the nations, and indeed that has come to pass. We support missionaries in India and South Africa to take the gospel to the subcontinent and the southern half of Africa. In light of all this, if you have not yet believed in Christ as Savior, you are invited to do so even today. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we are so blessed. We are so blessed, Lord, because we have a covenant-keeping God. A God who keeps promises. who God who says we belong to him and no other. A God who faithfully provides us the assurance of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant, the offspring of Abraham through whom the whole world is blessed. May we revel in that, Father. May we be joyful in that, Father. May we we be evangelists for you to those you have sent us to in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.